It's the Emily T. Gale Show, ESPNHawaii.com. And that baseball on my mind because I'm headed to Detroit and going to see some Detroit Tiger games. And and also, I just love the way uh, West Hawaii today is um, is showing uh, Colton Wong, how he is doing. You know, it's the average, and it's fun to watch that. And also, ESPNHawaii.com uh, is running the Cardinal game, St. Louis Cardinals, where where Colton plays for the St. Louis Cardinals. And um, sorry to hear um, Shane, the flying Hawaiian Victorino. I, I saw the other day where he, he had a minor league contract with the Cubs, but he says he still hopes he can do it. I was also surprised to hear that he had been playing for 12 years, but my goodness, what a career he has had. And anyway, we're going to talk about um, Detroit Tigers, the Negro Leagues. Uh, you know, in April, the uh, all the teams were number 42 in honor of Jackie Robinson Day. And Ken Burns has, been, has especially been running on PBS about Jackie Robinson. And, hey, it's summertime. It's uh, the boys of summer in <laughs> baseball. You know, however, everywhere I go around town, I see people with hats or something that I love. You know, I, I'm not as big a football fan, but baseball is fun to, to see where everybody's um, enthusiasm lies during the summertime. So uh, coming up in Detroit over the weekend of June 4th is um, the Negro League night. Well, actually, it's a whole whole weekend, so I'm I'm really looking forward to being there. And uh, on Friday, June 3rd, is the Negro Leagues, the kickoff of the weekend. And then Saturday, uh, the tribute games, and they're giving commemorative uh, hat to the first 10,000 fans. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of ceremonies. We're going to talk to Ellen Hill uh, Zerang, who's the VP of Marketing, and and uh, we'll catch up with her next week. But uh, she does such a great job at the promotions that they put on. And uh, so they're going to be having an Afro-American Legacy Award ceremony with Chet Lemon, who was playing during my era when I was in Detroit. So it can be a lot of fun to be there and get into a ballpark in a city, in my hometown city, Detroit. And uh, there'll be a lot of biking going on there. And whenever I'm I'm there, I'm always encouraging everybody to get over to Hawaii, enjoy all the things we have here, just as I encourage people from Hawaii to to make a visit to to Detroit and Michigan. Pure Michigan is very apropos for our state of Michigan. So we're going to kick it off with a, a friend of mine, Joe Maher, talking about the uh, Negro Leagues and the Detroit Tigers here on the Emily T. Gale Show, ESPNHawaii.com. have on the line a good friend of mine, Joe Maher, who is a not only a Tiger fan, but he's, he has a lot of history that I, I love talking to him about when we get together when I'm in Detroit and talk, and I thought I'd ask him to share some of his knowledge with our listeners. He's been a guest in the past, but Joe, thanks for joining me. I'm very happy to be talking to you, Emily. So it's springtime has sprung in Detroit, it looks like. Absolutely it has. It, it was delayed this year, but it's, it's broken out in true spring fashion, and actually we're today we're experiencing some summer temperatures. It's in the 80s today, and everybody's getting outside and enjoying Detroit Tigers baseball, so that's a very good thing. Yeah, I've been watching the games as I'm sitting here working, watching them on the MLB app, and uh looks like beautiful springtime days in Detroit. There's not a better season because everybody's always so happy to get in the warm weather and ride their bikes to Belle Isle or whatever community they live in, get out and, you know, be active. But one of those favorite things to do for everybody is to go to a Comerica Park and uh, go to a Tiger ball game. They've had just incredible seasons over the last few years that's not made it to the World Series, but in terms of fan attendance and 
just all the promotions they do and what an integral part they are of, of Detroit. So let's uh, talk a little bit about your your history with the Detroit Tigers and knowledge of it. I remember the first stories you told me was uh, when we kind of knew each other and you worked at a, at a, a very popular and renowned uh, camera store in Detroit called the Detroit Camera Shop or Photoshop, and it was right yeah. down the street from uh, Tiger Stadium. The old Briggs Stadium became Tiger Stadium. has now been torn down, and, and the Tigers playing a new park called Comerica Park. But let's go back to those days when, when you had worked in the camera shop, and eventually you opened your own. But some of the – how you met so many Tiger players and how it all tied in together. Well, a lot of the ball players uh, would uh, would shop in our store, and they would uh, the visiting ball players would stay in the Book Cadillac Hotel, which was right across the street, kitty corner from the Detroit Camera Shop at the corner of Michigan Avenue and Washington Boulevard. So they would walk down to the ballpark, walk you know straight up Michigan Avenue to Tiger Stadium there, and in the meantime they would see a store like ours, and they would stop in and shop, and we got to know a lot of them. And before I was there, there was a rich history of, of uh, people like Ted Williams, one of the greatest hitters of all time. He loved cameras and he loved photography was one of his uh, many hobbies and he was up in the store and then there was a hunting and fishing uh, tackle store across the street that he loved to hang out in and swap stories with so there was just a a tremendous atmosphere on that corner and it was being so close to tiger stadium we always thought we were in the midst of it during the tiger season well that's interesting that you you mentioned that about the book cadillac i hadn't thought about it before but in my era of having Emily's across the street, down next door to the London Chop House, and across the street was the Pontchartrain Hotel, and that's where all the players stayed. So they would all come across the street and hang out at Emily's and eat ice cream and hot dogs, you know, Reggie Jackson and Ron Guidry and that era of, of players. Yeah. And, and I had never thought about that, you know, that it was the hangout. I mean, I thought I remembered them coming in, but now I can just visualize the players coming out of the book Cadillac and walking down Michigan Avenue, stopping at the photo photo store. Some of the some of the players, I mean, probably in those days when you were at the camera store, would that be like Willie Horton and Gates Brown days? Yes, yes. And Gates Brown became a family friend and, and one of the great Tigers. I, I can tell you many stories just about Gates. And, um, and, and it's, you know, you, we, we had talked about the Negro Leagues and about the transition from the Negro Leagues to the integration of the game with Jackie Robinson in 47, but I had several conversations with, with Gates who came up in the in the early 60s into the major leagues, and uh, it was fascinating to me to get his perspective on things, Emily, because the prejudices that occurred when Jackie broke the color barrier in '47, many of them were still lingering into the early 60s when Gates broke into the major leagues, and I was just astonished to hear um, his personal struggles with that issue and people the prejudice that he en- endured, and we're talking uh, you know 1963-64, so. Many many years after Jackie's integration, um, a, a lot of the things that the ball, black ball players had experienced, the African American players had experienced, were still going on. Right, and and in the mid '60s was before civil rights, you know, legislation and, and a lot of it. And uh, I, you know, not surprised at all to hear that. But let's talk a little bit about the the Negro Leagues because um, I always thought of it as being something that kind of came about, you know, in the what ni- 1920s or something. Uh, but it, it goes all the way back to the 1880s, the, uh, the black uh, professional teams, and the blacks included Jamaicans, Cubans, and, and it was uh, later on that it was the Negro Leagues, right? Yes. Um, some of the accounts that I've read say that the first uh, ball game in which both teams were African-American players took place in 1860. 
Um, so the history is a deep one, and it's, it's a rich one. And in terms of what you referenced, in terms of the early 20s, 1919, 1920, uh, one of the great Hall of Famers, Andrew Rube Foster, one of the real geniuses um, in the Negro League history, he organized the Negro Professional League, and it was in eight cities, eight teams that he organized under the umbrella of a professional league, and that really put the stamp on um, the organization in terms of, of uh, fans following teams and rivalries that existed at the time. So Detroit's part in that was in 1920, uh, the Detroit Stars were incorporated, and that was uh, the Negro League baseball players, uh, you know, the team out of Detroit, and it ended up fielding some really legendary uh, men who played the games, many of whom um, ended up in the uh, Hall of Fame, and the most famous one of which was a man by the name of Norman Stearns, and everybody in the baseball world knows him as Turkey Stearns. And he's in the he's in the Cooperstown Hall of Fame, but he played his greatest years with the Detroit Stars right here in Detroit. And I think he was honored one year at the at the uh, Detroit Tigers uh, commemorative weekend tribute weekend. You're exactly um, right. So his wife yeah. Nettie was there to represent the family, and I believe his daughter was there as well. And just a great name in Detroit's history. And I remember reading that uh, long after Mr. Stearns retired. Um, way past his baseball days. He still loved going to Tiger Stadium and would sit in the outfield and enjoy the Tiger games. And I often wish that there would have been an interview done with him prior to his death um, in terms of what his experiences were and certainly the perspective that he would have visiting Tiger Stadium as a guest and seeing a game, but uh, after all that rich baseball history that he had contributed to. So what I understand was like the first time Detroit had a team, it was the Detroit Wolves. It was the East-West League or something like that. It didn't even last a year, that league. And then it integrated or moved into what you're speaking of, the formation of the Negro League that had that really has some history. Yep. And, uh, 1919, um, yeah. 1919 and 1933 was the heyday for the Detroit Stars. And so Detroit Stars, now I'm looking at a story that Terry Foster uh, wrote for the news and, of course, is on 90. 90- Seven won the ticket in Detroit. Um, he has tribute here to uh, Ron Teasley, who played with the Negro Leagues. And he, yes. at the time he wrote the story, Ron was uh, talking to school children about the new movie, 42, The Life of Jackie Robinson, that movie that my brother was in playing the part of Bert Schotten, the manager. Yes. Uh, Branch, uh, Harrison Ford played Branch Rickey, and, and Max played Bert Schotten, which is when I really started taking more interest in the history of uh, – Jackie Robinson, and the movie 42 really was just one little segment of his life. I think Ken Burns did a wonderful, has put together a wonderful piece on the history of Jackie Robinson from the time he was a little kid that they're featured on PBS, which gives a broader view of not just Jackie Robinson, but the, the whole era of uh, of blacks and in, in, in integrating. And at one time they were actually putting, some whites were integrating into the black leagues, right? Yes, not in any great numbers, but that did happen, and the stories involving Jackie's um, Jackie's tenure in the minor leagues and the Dodgers system, and then when he went into the major leagues in '47, the stories are just amazing. And you're right, Ken Burns touched on many of them. And I, I talked to people who were steeped in baseball history that saw that Ken Burns documentary, and they learned things from that that they never read or heard about before. Burns does a great job when he does tackles on a subject like that. Um, he does. What, he does. Yes. However, when you and I, I, I mentioned to you, I was reading the book on Ty Cobb, and there was something about it that that uh, struck me surprising. And I think what it was is the, the writer of the book. I, was, I picked it up at the uh, book signing last year at the Detroit uh, Historical Museum. 
to the author was there and a, a large crowd there and ran into Gary Spicer, who was uh, Ernie Harwell's agent for so many years. Ernie, the voice of, of uh, the Tigers and Kurt Gibson's agent and Alan Trammell's. And, and Gary was nice enough to purchase a book for me. He said, here, I want you to have this. So I was reading it, and in the book, he corrected some things that Ken Burns said. So I think it's important for us to remember, as well as he does, even he can make some errors in the history that he picks up, right, and, and repeats. But, boy, You're exactly right. A, yeah. There's no sport with, with as rich um, a history as baseball, and I don't think there's any sport in which people follow it as passionately in terms of devoting themselves to the history of the game. Uh, you very rarely encounter people who – study and talk about and are passionate about the history of the National Football League or any of the professional leagues as they are with baseball, simply because the breadth that it covers, the history of our country going back to the mid-19th century, but then just the passion that people grow up with. When when you're a fan at five, many times you're still a fan at 95, and, and your own personal history spans so much in terms of the players that you saw. We just lost one of the great Tigers from the 1968 team. Dick McCall passed away last week. And and just brought it out an outpouring of of uh, sentiments from people who would have been kids in the 60s and grew up watching Dick McAuliffe play the game correctly and do such a great job for us and be on that championship team and and it just it, it you know men grown men now who are little boys then remembered so many things about McAuliffe's life and shared that with in the radio community and in the newspaper community and you know we're we're blessed to have two tremendous announcers that inherited the mantle from. Uh, Ernie Harwell, and that's Dan Dickerson and, and uh, Jimmy Price, a, a member of the 68 championship team. And, and Mr. Price recounted his stories of Mr. McAuliffe on the air during one of the Tiger broadcasts. And it's what makes the game so special that you can weave those stories from decade to decade to the modern era, and people can relate to those things. But the other thing that I realized is that I wasn't a great baseball fan growing up. We didn't go to a lot of baseball games. But I've become, over the last 35 years, I've become kind of a, a fan of the history of different things because so many people that I, uh, had, that were friends of mine and still are in many ways, um, I realize what an integral part they've played in the game. And a couple of things like Ron Teasley, I mentioned, uh, that uh, Terry Foster had done that story on him. Well, Ron used to hang out at Emily's across the street and eat ice cream and hot dogs. And I didn't realize, and, and even if he had told me that he was a member of the Negro League, it didn't really strike me, you know. Mm-hmm. And now it is really, you know, I, I'm trying to reach Ron. And I love that, that you're piecing history together. Reading a story I read recently, uh, Damon Keith's book, Crusader for Justice, and I saw the movie that Mitch Album, uh, the documentary that Mitch made about uh, – Damon Keith, a, a federal judge, and uh, was a good friend of mine, and he hung out in the store and ate ice cream and hot dogs. And and but I'm reading here that um, long after, or 14 years after Jackie Robinson broke the major league baseball color barrier, Jake Wood Jr. made his major league debut as the first African American to come to the Detroit Tiger organization and play for the Detroit Tigers. He was the primary reason Tiger's great hometown hero Willie Horton signed with the Detroit Tigers following his dad's direction, along with legal advisor Judge Damon Keith. And and Damon became uh, Willie's mentor, and he worked closely with him and others bringing more African-American ballplayers to the Tigers. They believed the change would lead to more African-American fans and businesses. And Damon, you know, when I read this book, I realized how many areas within the city his influence was there, mentoring ballplayers, yes. mentoring people from all walks of life. Another one is Ellen Hill-Zerang, who is the vice president of marketing for the Detroit Tigers. She was the first woman and Afro-American to serve 
in that role. And the first interview I ever did with her, she said, are you the same Emily Gale that my mother used to bring me into your store <laughs> many years ago? <laughs> and and we've become friends, and I've loved following what she has done. She has integrated in the marketing department, not just uh, Afro-Americans, but one of the people that she brought into it just won the uh, 20 under 20s, one of those those uh, accolades with Crane Communications. And she is, her name is uh, Eileen Villarea, and she's the media relations for Detroit Tigers, but she's created, you know, a, a Twitter account. It's all in Spanish. That's her whole role is to mm. to present the Tigers to people in, in Spanish and, you know, in, in, a, in other la- language, translates the news and the statistics into Spanish. And so all of these things, you know, as much time as they take, like Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, he really wasn't the best player, right? But he was the one that they felt, like Branch Rickey did, was the one that could handle what it was going to take to have this integration happen. And kind of speak to that, how it's all evolving in, in many capacities. Well, you, you touched on some really important things, Emily, and, and I want to go back to something you, you mentioned in passing there and, and, and think about this. You know, Jackie broke the color barrier in 47, and it was 1961 that the Tigers hired their first African-American player. And that's something that Jackie railed against throughout his major league career. Why is it taking 14 years, in this case, for the Detroit franchise with this incredible history of playing tremendous, great baseball in the city of Detroit? Why did it take 14 years to hire the first African-American player? And they were the second to the last team to do it. The very last team was Boston with a man by the name of Clumsy Green. I believe that was a year or two later. And so it's a shameful part of our history in many ways because of the length of time that it took for finally for that acceptance to be, you know, so widespread. So when I was talking to Gates and it really opened my eyes up to um, what his experience, but not only his, but so many of them and his contemporaries in the early 60s still be going down south to play um, for minor league games in the the spring training and playing in the minor leagues rather and uh, not being able to stay in the same hotel as their white counterparts and, and that was still going on in 62, 63, into 64 before the civil rights legislation came into play, not being able to eat at the same restaurants. And so this is not ancient history that we're talking about. Um, but to your point in terms of, of Jackie, the other thing that's fascinating to me is that there was a litmus test in terms of the lightness of a of a skin color in which the major leagues would accept a ball player or deny a ball player. So there were Hispanic players from Cuba who were very light-skinned, some of them with blue eyes, who were able to play in the major leagues way before their dark-skinned counterparts in Cuba were able to play. And that's the difference that Jackie made. The color barrier was broken at that point. And so he laid the groundwork for men to follow him who were dark-skinned, not just African-American, but from Cuba or Venezuela, um, other countries that wouldn't have been able to play had it not been for Jackie. So the, the game owes him a debt that can never be repaid. And, and when I see that one game a year where all the ballplayers wear the number 42 in his honor, I hope that never stops. I hope it's being taught for generation after generation in terms of how incredible his sacrifices were in order to know the game as we know it now. And it's so neat that his wife, uh, Rachel, is still living because, you know, she gives a lot of interviews and she's she's very uh, candid about, you know, what they experienced and also very thrilled at what is going on. The other one that gives a lot of credit is Branch Rickey. I understand this. He was the only one of 16 owners to support integrating the sport in January 1949. 
So, you know, it, it was at all levels that the, the, the attitude needed to be changed. And one of the people I always enjoy seeing when I'm back and, and go to a Tiger game and I'm up in the press box is Terry Moore. Terry's a reporter in Detroit. And uh, yes. he's been a member of the Sports Broadcaster Association for a long time, Michigan Radio Network. And I love to watch him work while he's up there. I always have to, you know, zip it so I don't interrupt him while he's working. But... Uh, he's the son of uh, James Bullitt Moore, the Detroit Stars, who has also been honored at some of the some of the uh, tributes the Detroit Tigers have have had. And I think they're really trying to to make up lost ground because uh, you're right; they were the second to the last to integrate, and they didn't have a good history in that regard. But they've certainly come a long way since then, haven't they? So James James uh, Bullitt Moore, anything about yeah, him? Absolutely. absolutely, yeah. Do you do you remember some things about him or? No, not now. No, I don't really have any anecdotes to share with about Mr. Moore. I recognize the name, um, and uh, there were so many. There were so many great players. There was a man named Ray Dandridge who was considered one of the great third basemen of all time. That um, was in his 40s when Jackie integrated the game and was considered too old to make the transition into the major leagues. It had a tr- long, long career in the Mexican League and then also the ne- American Negro League. And I met him once, and I just threw out a name in. in uh, and he, it was his manager, and it was somebody that I was very interested about. His, his manager back at the Detroit Stars days was a man by the name of Candy Jim Taylor. And I asked him if he had any reminiscences about J, uh, Candy Jim, and his eyes lit up, and he goes, you know, I haven't thought of Candy in a long time. And he was sharing some anecdotes about playing for him, and Taylor had been dead for 50 years at that point. And, again, it's just that interweaving from uh, the, in the great tradition of telling stories from one generation to the next so that these things will be uh, remembered. Oh, and I love—I just love getting the history. In fact, uh, the uh, Major League Baseball uh, Museum, the, the, the Legal League Museum, there on Twitter. I back and forth with them over the last year or so, and really interesting what they are doing with with the uh, Negro League Museum. But also, um, oh, what was it here? A little history. Oh, it was a history about the ballparks, the Negro League ballparks, and I read where. The Hamtramck Stadium was where the Detroit League played. Where is it here? Somebody knows. Yeah. But are, play, are you familiar with that? The Which Stars played in the, the, the yeah Detroit football city has has refurbished the league and they had their first live game the other day. Yeah, there was a there was a famous uh, stadium associated with the Stars called Mack Field that held about fifty five hundred or six thousand fans and um, it was their it was it was their home base for a very long time. Um, some of the cities, the teams grew so great in popularity that the owners of the Negro League's teams contacted the owners of the professional franchises in that city. Chicago is an example of that. And they would rent out the stadium on the days that the professional um, white team was traveling, and they would rent it out for the Negro League games and, and the owners. And I think that's when the owners' eyes really started opening up to the financial consequences of this because they would play a doubleheader on Sunday in Chicago, for instance, and the Negro League games would pack in 30 or 35,000 people. And it was a day that the Cubs or the White Sox were traveling. And I think the owners at that time started looking at that and saying, we're missing out on something very important here. And, and the that other was thing their, that their main source of income, wasn't it, was the Negro League games? Yes. And, that, and then the, uh, some of the white players um, started coming forward and saying, this has to change. The t- level of talent that we're experiencing it's got to change because we're missing out on some of the greatest ball players in the history of the game. And the only reason that we're missing out on them is because of the color of their skin. So 
Joe DiMaggio reported things to that effect. Babe Ruth, who was beloved within the African-American community, um, often spoke um, against uh, the idea that these players were excluded from playing the game. And there was only so far that they could go in that. They weren't in an ownership position. But he would rave about the talents of the pitchers that he faced, for instance. Um, Lee Satchel Page, you know, perhaps the history of the Negro Leagues, he was once asked about Turkey Stearns, that gentleman I mentioned to you earlier, and he said he was as great, if not the best, of all the players that we had in our league. And yet there's a lot of fans today that don't know the name and don't know his story, and yet he's in the Cooperstown Hall of Fame. He's one of the the uh, Negro League players that was inducted into the hall. And I think one of the reasons for that, not only that should he be there, which he should, but simply to broaden people's awareness and like looking up a name and saying, I, I know a lot about baseball, but I don't know this man or this man who's in the Hall of Fame. And Hopefully that will trigger people to research and read about these great players. Well, it certainly inspired me. And, of course, knowing Ellen Hills-Zerang and watching her and what she's you know, trying to do in terms of broadening that that uh, awareness with all all colors. But um, you mentioned uh, Satchel Paige. I'm pretty sure that James Bullitt Moore, who is Terry Moore's father, uh, it was the catcher for the for a no hitter, a satchel page. <laughs> I remember. He, yeah, he had such a long and incredible career that uh, there's a lot of players who have satchel page stories to share. He was an extremely charismatic man, larger than life, and just an incredible, awesome baseball talent. So, what are you feeling about the uh, Tigers these days? You know how they're doing. I think they went they went over 500 yesterday, right, with the win. Had kind of a rough start there, 10 or 11 losses, or. We're closer. Yeah, we had a tremendous slump, and then we came out of the slump, and we've had a tremendous winning spree. Um, so, every, you know, Hope Springs eternal. There's a lot of faithful fans in this city, and, and a lot of people pulling for them to do well. We have a couple. Uh, we have a men like Miguel Cabrera playing for us, who's a future Hall of Famer, and we're. I think we're going to be fortunate enough to have him. This whole part of his career be a Detroit Tiger, and to witness his greatness is just an amazing thing. So, Justin Verlander is really on back on track, and and pitching well for us, and we have a great team, and, and hopefully it gels together, and they can make a run at the uh, at their uh, at the leaders behind the White Fox and the Royals right now. But uh, I think we can make a run at it. Well, you know, I you mentioned Miguel Cabrera and even Justin Verlander. Of course, he's getting paid a lot of money, but he just got engaged to uh, Kate Upton, right? Who I did not did. realize her father is it or her uncle is the uh, state representative from, from yeah, Michigan. The, the, Deep ties to the western side of Michigan, and uh, happy for him. And uh, we have so many players. We have a clubhouse leader, Victor Martinez, and, and uh, greatly respected players from you know that uh, around the country. I've always it's, it's interesting for me to to see when other players come to play in Detroit against us, the, the respect that they show to people like Victor and to Miguel. These are men that we have on our team who are widely respected within the game itself as being players who do it the right way. So it's a this is a, it's a good organization. It truly is. And Mr. Illich. I can't praise him enough for what he's done um, with the Red Wings in town and, and developing the downtown area and certainly the devotion that he's paid to the Tigers to try to bring a championship to the city. He's left no stone unturned, and it's not through any lack of what he's done that we aren't we haven't become a World Series champion recently, but uh, we have great ownership here in the city. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, uh, Miguel Cabrera, you mentioned you know, he looks like he's going to stay for his career. So many of the players that come to Detroit, they're like, oh, I don't really want to go to Detroit, but they end up living here, loving it, and staying after their careers. And I am loving that Kurt Gibson is on those broadcasts. I know he's you know, been diagnosed with some Parkinson's. He seems to be handling it well, and I just love his commentary on the uh, the Tiger 
TV broadcast. He's just teaching us so much. But I just love when these players, you know, move, uh, they they stay in Detroit after their careers. If they've gone other places, like Kurt did, but uh, their 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 hearts are in Detroit, and they they continue. And Mike Illich goes way back before he owned the Tigers. I'm looking at a picture right now of myself with Tom Monahan, the owner of Donald's Pizza, or not anymore, but was. But when he bought the Tigers before Mike Illich, who owns Little Caesars, um, yeah. we did some some of our runs, the Emily and Pooh and Domino's Pizza 2 runs, and with a lap through Tiger Stadium. And Tom wasn't that well-known yet with Domino's Pizza, but uh, it moved on, and then, then Mike Illich bought it. That was the team he always wanted, was the Detroit yeah. Tigers, but he bought the Red Wings while Monaghan owned the Tigers. And he's kept both teams. But he goes way back to the 50s and stuff. He was a, he was a, a professional baseball player himself, Mike Illich. And then yeah, he had so those I, softball leagues. Those softball leagues brought so yeah. many people in the game. I, I have a friend who, uh, Patricia Cunningham, was in the Women's Hall of Fame softball. She says when she was a kid, she'd go to those games and watch Mike Illich. I guess he was the coach of those some of those teams he had. Or And, and she would listen to the comments he made. She said she that's how she really learned the game of baseball, overhearing, overhearing him. So, Talk about Mike Illich and the the largest municipal or the largest stadium and commercial project that's being built in the country right now. Building the new Little Caesars Arena, which is they recently um, disclosed is going to be the name of the new Red Wings facility, and it's going to be a amazing facility. It's going to have residences, it's going to have retail, it's going to have walking streets uh, within the complex to walk to the stadium and back home again, and stop at a at a bar or restaurant in between. So. He's quietly uh, developed, uh, accumulated a lot of properties in that area with the goal of building this this uh, incredible uh, site. And it's going to happen, and it, it, it's, it's going to be amazing contribution, another amazing contribution to the downtown area. But I give him so much credit because with his, um, with his success, he could have taken that success to any of the suburbs around Detroit. He could have gone anywhere in the country he wanted to and do his development. But he did. He traveled that narrow road. He he developed downtown Detroit when it wasn't a popular thing to do because he loved the city. Um, as you said, a minor league baseball player, grew up with a tremendous love for the Tigers and wanted the city to succeed. And uh, we all owe him a debt. I mean, it's just amazing what he's done. And and one thing about our area, Emily, and you you can attest to this growing up here. Detroiters love Detroiters. It's such a parochial area, and when a Detroiter does well, and so is that they want to give back to the city. I don't think there's a place in the country that supports that more than Detroiters do. So to see Mr. Illich come out of our area and have that great success and not travel elsewhere with it, but to stay in the city and people support him for that reason. And, and uh, you're part of that fabric of, of our history with Emily's. And there's, everywhere I go, if your name comes up, there's an immediate association with your retail store in downtown Detroit. People remember the people who gave back and propagated great things about our city. It is amazing. I was down at the USGA qualifying the other day at a really nice club down here and, and uh, covering it. And for the Emily T. Gale show here on ESDNHawaii.com, and the person that caddied for the first group that came in, as he sat down at the bar, he said, hey, Emily, every time I see the stories about who your guests are and listen to your show, all I, I tell whoever I'm with, I used to go into her store when I was eight years old and lived in Detroit. Exactly. <laughs> Played a pinball machine, and his father had been a broker at Oldby and Company, which was the first uh, discount brokerage firm in the country. And uh, somebody else I just talked to this morning that's uh, affiliated with Citybird, who uh, she's new working with Citybird in downtown Detroit, which is uh, 
owned by Emily and Angie Lynn, and when they opened up, they sent me a letter. You know, we used to come in your stores, kids. Can we use, say nice things about Detroit? Your, your, your phrase and be part of that movement. I call them caretakers. And she, out of the clear blue, said, you know, I have some great pictures of your store from back then. I said, really? How old were you at the time? She said, I was about eight years old, lived in St. Clair Shores, and my dad would bring me down to your store. So, I, I mean, every day I get some kind of story. And the, the one I want to tell is about Mike Illich. He wasn't, before he owned the Red Wings and the Detroit Tigers and everything, you know, Fox Theater and his headquarters downtown, he wasn't in Detroit with his little Caesar restaurants at the time. I think one of the first ones he opened up was one block from where Emily's across the street was, down there in the uh, Marquette building. And he reached out to me at that time, called up and wanted to talk. I mean, and it's in in the the ensuing, what, that would be 20, 35 years what he's done, but... Uh, you know, it wasn't like he just came in and did all these big things. He, you know, he brought his first little pizza parlor down there. He was a big franchise by then, but, you know, nevertheless, watching him progress. And I love being part of that history. Uh, I'm pleased to say you know, I'm going to be talking uh, June 9th at the Urban Consulate. I don't know if you're familiar with that that facility and organization, Claire Nelson. She got a really nice grant from the Knight Foundation. So every Thursday night they have Detroiters speak as parlor talk. So I'm real excited about going down there. And every time I go to Detroit, which I'll be doing next week and going to the Tigers uh, Negro League weekend celebration, you know, they're giving away commemorative hats. And Ellen Hills Durang is always very, you know, gives me a lot of warm welcome and everything. But I love coming back and, and I, and, tying that all together because I am working with so many of the, the people who today are doing things in Detroit. The Detroit Historical Museum is carrying our Say Nice Things About Detroit bumper stickers and mugs and, and things that uh, Chris Gorski from Detroit GT is producing and, and the lady that is in charge of that area of Detroit Historical Museum was with the Thanksgiving Day Parade from way back in the 70s and 80s. So the first time we talked, she said, oh, Emily, I used to run in your runs or so the connecting of the history has been very important to me and working with the people who are creating history today. Absolutely right. That's beautifully said. And, and the people who have Detroit in their blood, they, they, one thing they want is to see Detroit succeed. And, and they, they celebrate Detroit successes. And so wherever that comes from, they're all about supporting that. And, uh, and like I say, you're a big part of that. And what you – you were very prescient in terms of saying nice things about Detroit and what that would mean to people in the coming generations that Detroit became a punchline and Detroit became bashed and the subject of jokes, but they were never funny to people who were born and raised in the city like I was. Uh, we took pride in where, in where we have come from and we want the city to, to succeed. And absolutely it's taken some hard knocks over the years, but uh, it's on its way back and, and everybody's pulling for it to do well. Well, Joe Maher, a uh, longtime friend of mine, and uh, just I always love sitting and talking with you, and I, this has been a wonderful conversation. Let's take a moment and talk about your growing up in the city, and and, and you've had a lot to do over the years with, with a lot of things that are happening in downriver Detroit, which is where I grew up too. And I always say to everybody, you know, that, that that is really the fabric of Detroit. That's where the steel mills were. That's where – talk about where you grew up a little bit and – and the kind of places you went for recreation when you were growing up in Detroit and then segueing down into uh, being part of the downriver community in such an integral way. It's, it's, uh, thank you for asking. Uh, yeah, I was born and raised in Detroit, southwest Detroit, near the, uh, 
the, the Ambassador Bridge right in the shadows of that and went to school at a, a Holy Redeemer High School in Detroit and then University of Detroit and then made my way down to downriver area and fell in love with a town called Wyandotte and that's been the base of my operations ever since and my work and um, it's just a great community. It reminds me, Wyandotte for instance, reminds me a lot of growing up in Detroit. It's a, it's a community just south of Detroit, about 20 minutes and same kind of parochial pride that I was talking about. People really care about the city and they want it to do well. And we have wonderful suburbs like that around Detroit where people live in Ferndale and Royal Oak and the other side of town and, and in our area. Um, but the cornerstone of that is wanting the city of Detroit to succeed because when the city of Detroit is hurting, it hurts everybody who lives in and around the city. And when the city of Detroit does well, we all benefit from that. But, uh, yeah, you know, part of the metro area and, and, and my work takes me to a lot of different communities. And I see a, we're pulling out of a, a pretty much a 10-year recession in our area, and, and we've seen tremendous signs of recovery in the last 24 months, and we're just all very hopeful that it keeps trending in the right direction. Well, of course, you work as a realtor uh, with Century 21. Yes, and, yes, ma'am. And, uh, of course, that's how we met, because you were involved uh, transferring a store, and a nice transition of uh, the old Gales Office Supply Store where I grew up working in Down River since the time I was about eight years old. And that was a mainstay in, in that community to the uh, Wyandotte Total Health Foods. And, and that's a, a way in which many of those buildings in that area that you have helped people and gotten the right people into the building so that the history of those communities continues on in a, in a way that people that are really committed, like the Total Health Food Store is. And that for, for our family, you know, to see the building that was so much a part of our family for so many years used in a way that's going to continue to be a part of the history of Wyandotte. But you know, speak a little bit. Every time I go down to Sibley Gardens and drive by McLeod Steel, and, you know, it, 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 I'm just so reminded of how that was kind of growing up, just looking at all the steel being forged. And talk a little bit about the tool and die shops and how, it, how Down River has played such a part in the automobile industry. Well, because of the because of the, the natural resources, and specifically the, the railroads and then the Detroit River itself, uh, Wyandotte was the center of a lot of industrial activity. Um, the, the, the first mayor of the city of Wyandotte, Mr. Van Alstyne, um, owned the Eureka Iron Works, which stretched all along the waterfront in uh, Wyandotte. And uh, it was an enormous part of the history of the Downriver area in terms of contributions to the car industries and, and uh, all, uh, parts, as you mentioned earlier, the suppliers uh, to the car companies. And, and that's transitioned as, as that industry kind of waned. A lot of those uh, factories are being repurposed and coming down and turned into something else. And, and some that remain that aren't real attractive, um, one of the reasons they remain is that there's quite a bit of environmental cost involved with uh, remediating or removing those buildings. But to a great degree, the river has bounced back. And if you walk along the riverfront uh, in Wyandotte, it's absolutely beautiful. And Middle Avenue, the downtown area, there's a lot of shops now that are full that used to be uh, empty and uh, we have very few vacancies in Wyandotte any longer and it's a very bustling downtown area which we're all thrilled to see but just the product of hard work it doesn't happen by accident and a lot of people uh, we have a mayor in Wyandotte who cares very much about retailing part of our city and, and he's got an open door policy to welcome people into the city so it takes hard work but it's been a success. And of course the riverfront you know down river you're looking over to uh, Grosil and places like that right and and uh, in Detroit, they're looking. We look over into Canada, 
And yes. uh, in fact, the Detroit Grand Prix will be on Belle Isle, which is in the center of Detroit, the, the, the park in Detroit. That will be coming up next weekend. And the riverfront, all the communities are learning that they should be areas of recreation. In the old days, you know, back in the 70s, it was the Robin Hood flour mill down the riverfront. The Outdoor Adventure Center in downtown Detroit has just become such a, a magnet for their, their slogan is bringing downtown or bringing up north downtown. And all these communities, seeing the changes in Wyandotte and all along there, I love running there when I'm back in Detroit. I get down into Wyandotte and run along the riverfront there as I do in Detroit, too. And it's uh, it's it's really fun to, to see the evolution. And at the same time, there are communities in which people stay there and have generations of history, right? Yeah, so exactly. you can go anywhere and you start talking to someone and you hear a story that kind of ties in. That's why I'm working my way back to Detroit. I feel like I need to get back and... I'll be there quite a bit this summer, but uh, I, I eventually see myself uh, landing there and and getting a little more familiar with my roots. I just learned recently that one of my relatives was the mayor of Detroit at one time back in wow. the early 1900s, you know. So I guess I wasn't paying attention when my dad was telling me things, but now <laughs> I'm talking to my cousins and, and my brother Max and, you know, just things that we, we kind of each knew but didn't all know. So it's wonderful, and, and Joe, it's always wonderful to talk with you and, and just just to talk story, as we say here in Hawaii. I really appreciate your time, and I look forward to uh, doing that at our, our breakfast in downtown Wyandotte. In the next week I'm looking two. forward to it. I appreciate your time with you, Emily. Thank you so much. Okay. Joe Maher, a longtime friend, and uh, just been, was just a great help to us, uh, our family, and uh transitioning and building that was really dear to our hearts <laughs> into the right hands with the uh, with the new health food store. I look forward to stopping in and seeing them since they've opened up. So, okay, Joe, all the best. And Thanks, see you Emily. Soon. It's the Emily T. Gale Show here on ESPNHawaii.com, and you can get the uh, podcast at iTunes and also my Facebook page. Please uh, say hello, Emily T. Gale. Aloha.